You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Trey, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Occasionally, I get the chance to hear from one of you who happens to be related to a pirate somewhere in your family tree. Which is awesome, just objectively a cool factoid to discover about your family. I'm not so lucky myself. Aside from a few potential Vikings... The best I've got is a sailor on a voyage of Sir Walter Raleigh, which would be fine if it was one of Raleigh's cool voyages, but this particular mission was a voyage to Guinea. Not exactly something to be proud of. Today, though, we're going to be talking about a pirate who has descendants living in England and America to this very day, some of whom even carry his last name, However, to say their descendants isn't exactly accurate. As far as I know, Thomas too didn't have any children of his own. But he came from a big family, a family that spanned the Atlantic. So Thomas too has great, 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 ten or twelve times great grandnieces and grandnephews living in places like Northamptonshire and Providence, Rhode Island, and all over the world. We humans are a notoriously mobile lot. Because Thomas, too, was a real pirate, with real family. However, he does serve as something of an excellent example of what makes the story of piracy so difficult and rewarding at the same time. Were we to stick to the hard facts as we know them, Thomas, too's story would be short. Point A to point B to point C to point D, F. But because the facts, the hard facts of the story of Captain Thomas II are so remarkable, they've been embellished. First, and most notably, by Captain Charles Johnson. And those embellishments have become 
part of the narrative, part of the story of Thomas too. So deeply embedded in his myth that they've become almost unrecognizable from the facts. It's kind of like, well, did Alexander the Great actually pull his sword and cut through the Gordian knot? Or was that just a story told to us by his biographer, Arian? When told that Persian arrows would blot out the sun, did Leonidas say, then we will fight in the shade, or was that just an invention of Herodotus? When Thomas too asked his men if they wanted to sail off for a life of liberty and booty and rum and adventure and tropical paradises, did the crew really say to him, a gold chain or a wooden leg will stand with you? I mean, maybe they did, or maybe not. But that is the story of Thomas too, as we understand it. And that's the story, hard fact and myth intertwined, that I'm going to do my best to relate to you. This is episode 191, A Gold Chain or a Wooden Leg. The story of Thomas too, really... The story of the Pirates of the Round can only begin in one place and with one topic. In West Africa, with slavery. Our common cultural conception of colonial Africa tends to come from later developments. Mostly the post-industrial revolution 19th century partition of Africa, what they call the scramble for Africa. That's when huge swaths of African territory were gobbled up by the imperial European powers of the day. It was a fight for natural resources, resources intended to feed Europe's industrial engines. Literally, you know, they were going for coal and petroleum. Prior to the scramble for Africa, though, African colonization was... Well, I don't want to say it was smaller. I don't want to give the impression that it was a minor affair. Colonization was rampant, but the actual physical European holdings in West Africa were smaller than they later would be. There were numerous fortresses and port cities all along the coast of Africa belonging to the Portuguese and the French and the Dutch and the English. And we might talk a lot about King Sugar, as they called it, the economic driver of the day, mostly from the West Indies. But as much as, in the 19th century, Europe would strip Africa of coal and petroleum to fire their economic engines, in the 17th and 18th century they stripped Africa of generations of human beings to fire the economic engines of that time period. Sugar, tobacco, cotton a bit later on. And you know, we know about the slave trade. It's one of the great evils of human history. But for our purposes, for our discussion today, those fortresses and port cities all along the coast of Africa were, especially in times of war, they were great military targets. First of all, they were targets of strategic importance. They made for good naval bases, places to collect wood and water. And then there's the plunder to be won. Gold and ivory, and of course the human beings to fuel the agricultural production of the New World. 
when that ancestor of mine sailed with Sir Walter Raleigh to raid the coast of Guinea, it was under a privateering commission, but they were commissioned to steal slaves from the Portuguese. That sort of thing was happening all the time. I, I bet you didn't think I was going to bring that back, did you? It's... Don't worry, it's okay to be impressed with my narrative genius. I often am. But those raids, early on, those privateering raids, were smash-and-grab operations to steal human beings and plunder from African outposts, to sail home with some of the most valuable cargo in the world. But they were the kind of job reserved for privateers. You know, you can't have the honorable men of the Royal Navy dirtying their hands on business like that. But then there was a problem. It turned out that as much as the powers that be might want privateers to steal slaves from enemy powers, people just didn't like doing it. Which, yeah, I know boo-hoo, the poor slave traders, right? But they were human beings, and Watching a cargo hold full of other human beings starve to death isn't something most people can do. You know, hey, look, women and children, oh, that one's pregnant, oh, wait, they're all dead. Sailors in that position sometimes revolted. Not all the time, not even most of the time, but enough that it was causing an economic impact on the market. They couldn't necessarily be trusted to complete that kind of mission. So... The work was relegated to the Royal Africa Company in England, or their respective equal in other countries. By that point, it wasn't privateers doing this job. They couldn't be trusted to do so. But they were often brought on as hired guns for these missions. Additional ships paid a wage to offer additional firepower. But the pay wasn't great. Often it was atrocious. And the opportunity for plunder on such a highly regulated market was virtually nil. You can begin to see the problems that might arise from this sort of arrangement. All of which brings us to Thomas II. When we last caught up with Thomas II, he was fighting, probably, in the Battle of Port Royal during King William's War in the Canadian province of Acadia. We know that the privateer George Dew was there, with a privateering commission from the governor of Bermuda, and many assume that Thomas II sailed either under or alongside him. If we accept that, we could assume that Thomas II also took part in the larger and disastrous Battle of Quebec. That was a battle that we skipped over in favor of talking about the witch trials in Salem. But England lost that battle, and they lost it bad. It's a bit of a shame that we skipped over that battle, though not really because it's important to our story, it's not. But the chronicle of that battle, the play-by-play -play record we have, was written by a man named Savage, and the passing up of that opportunity to use puns that bad just, well, it keeps me up at night. But I should note that while we've talked about a number of French victories in the war, essentially all of the conflict we've talked about has ended in French victory so far, but the League of Augsburg 
you know, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, England, they were having much better luck on land, on the continent. The war against Louis and the Rhineland was going well, even if it wasn't going well elsewhere. Still, though, for George Dew and probably Thomas too, the Battle of Quebec left them out a lot of resources. Shot and powder and money and probably men. And they had, after such a terrible defeat, almost nothing to show for it. Much later on, when the fallout from all of these so-called roundsmen reached back to their colonial leadership, when a number of prominent men were put on trial, a testimony came to light regarding Thomas II. Here in 1690, it was said to be well known that Thomas II sailed out of Newport as a freebooter. He was known to capture fishing vessels or small merchant craft off the coast of New England, but at one point, Thomas II was said to have captured a relatively rich prize off the coast of Cape Cod, relatively compared to the substantial prizes he would take later on. All of this is questionable. It did appear in testimony under oath, but the corresponding records just aren't there. You'd think that maybe the court at Boston would mention it, but they didn't. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If it did happen... This prize put a little coin in Thomas II's purse. Enough that, in 1691, and this we know did happen, Thomas II sailed for Bermuda. 
He stayed there for several months. It looks like he may have been planning to settle down, to buy a house, that kind of thing. But while he was there in Bermuda, an investment opportunity presented itself. Now, we don't know the innermost thoughts and feelings of Thomas too in this time, but I suspect that he was hatching a scheme. I imagine Thomas too sharing drinks with his friends like George Dew and Richard Want, and you need to remember Richard Want. I imagine them sharing drinks at a local tavern and whispering to each other. Coming up with ideas, maybe recruiting and formulating their master plan. The recruiting is a big part of it. When you have a plan like I imagine Thomas Two and Richard Want were currently building, you have to choose your crew and your friends carefully. You know, the right sort of sailor, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We can say for certainty that Thomas Two invested in a mission, a commission, really, to attack the French off the coast of Africa. It was a slaving mission. You see a lot of these around 1691. The governor of New York, Benjamin Fletcher, handed one to a privateer named William May on board the ship Blessed William, a ship with which May had definitely not just absconded from Nevis. In Port Royal, Jamaica, a Captain George Rain received a commission for his ship Loyal Jamaica, definitely not Bachelor's Delight, for a similar mission. They were all pirates. That was William Mason, who stole Captain Kidd's ship. George Rain was George Rayner, from the Second Pacific Adventure, captain of the Bachelor's Delight. There were a ton of these handed out. Those pirates, men like George Rayner, William Mason, they all intended to engage in piracy. Not lawful privateering, but those Dutch and English sailors off the coast of Africa were less likely to arrest them with that privateering commission, that slip of paper that was their shield. I think that Thomas too was in the same boat. I don't think he intended to follow orders. But of course we don't know that. Maybe he did intend to follow orders. However, the crux of this entire mission, the entire investment really, came from a bunch of merchants who bought a sloop. Thomas Hill, Richard Gilbert, John Dickinson, Colonel Anthony White, and William Outerbridge, among a few others, some of whom were on the governor's council, they all pooled their money to buy a ship. They refit that ship and outfitted her and named her, in an ode to their newfound coalition and combined business venture, they named that ship Amity. A number of captains came forward to bid on the commission offered by the governor of Bermuda, Isaac Richier, but it was Thomas II that won that bidding war, and the captaincy of Amity. Now, Amity wasn't a big ship. She was a sloop. She had only eight guns on board and could carry a crew of only 46 men. But all of those 46 were Thomas II's chosen crew. Captain George Dew had his own commission and a larger ship with more men, but they were to sail alongside Amity on the same mission. Both ships were to sail for Ile de Gorier, or Gorier Island. That was a French outpost at the mouth of the River Gambia in the modern nation of Senegal. 
En route, they were to meet with a small squadron of company ships, according to the commission. And by that they meant Royal Africa company ships. They were to join up, and upon reaching Gorier, they would support those company ships in a raid to capture slaves and gold and ivory from the French. Upon their successful return to Bermuda, Thomas II and George Dew were to be paid a lump sum to be divided among the crew as they saw fit. This was the mission. Thomas II agreed to all of it. He signed papers about it. But he wasn't going to do any of it. A few days after leaving Bermuda, in the company of George Dew, the two ships were happened upon by a sudden and vicious storm. It might have been a hurricane. The time of year was right, at least. But in that storm, Amity and George Dew were separated. Captain Dew was hit particularly hard by the storm. His mainmast snapped in half. The best he could do was limp with his sails to the fore and aft. And unfortunately for Captain Dew and his crew, all of the nearby settlements were either local African settlements who would kill them all, or enemy Europeans who would kill them all. Their journey, George Dew's journey, I mean, was long and difficult. Weeks of searching, at first for the Amity and then for any kind of safe haven. That journey ended only when George Dew finally landed at the Dutch port at Seldanha Bay. The Dutch were, in his estimation, less likely to kill the English outright, and he was correct in that. They didn't kill them, but... They did arrest George Dew and every member of his crew on suspicion of piracy. The Dutch impounded their ship and sent the crew off to Amsterdam to stand trial. And this was their own kind of legal piracy. You know, the Dutch had no evidence against George Dew. He even had a privateering commission. George Dew and his men were eventually all acquitted, but despite his countersuit against the Netherlands, he never got his ship back that stayed in the hands of the people at Seldanha Bay. Legal piracy. But Thomas II and Richard Wundt had much better luck. They were blown far off course by that storm, but Amity stayed in fine sailing shape throughout. But it was here, out at sea, all alone, dispersed by a storm and with nothing to look forward to but a tough fight against the French and meager wages upon their return, that Thomas too gave his men a speech. We have several versions of this speech. Captain Charles Johnson gives us the first version submitted to the public in a general history of the pirates. Testimonies of the day would give additional and sometimes contradictory details of the speech. And then other authors sometimes more reputable and sometimes less, would give their own versions of this speech in centuries to follow. But it's something of a commencement address for the golden age of piracy. I'm going to relate to you the version given to us by Don Carlos Saitz in Under the Black Flag. That's a history of pirates from 1925. And it's full of inaccuracies, but the version of Thomas II's speech given in that book seems to incorporate bits and pieces from all of those other sources. In that version, Thomas II gave his crew 
the following speech. He said, quote, that they were not ignorant of the design with which the governor fitted them out, the taking and destroying the French factory, that he indeed readily agreed to take a commission to this end, though contrary to his judgment, because it was being employed, but that he thought it would be a very injudicious expedition, which, did they succeed in, would be of no use to the public, and only advantage a private company of men, from whom they could expect no reward of their bravery, that he could see nothing but danger in the undertaking without the least prospect of booty, that he could not suppose any man fond of fighting for fighting's sake, and few ventured their lives but with some view either of particular interest or public good. But here was not the least appearance of either, Wherefore he was of the opinion that they should turn their thoughts on what might better their circumstances, and if they were so inclined he would undertake to shape a course which would lead them to ease and plenty, in which might pass the rest of their days, that one bold push would do their business, and they might return home not only without danger, but even with reparation. End quote. And it was then, at the end of this surprisingly erudite and eloquent speech, that the crew exclaimed with one voice, spontaneously they would have us believe, a gold chain or a wooden leg will stand with you. Which, you know, no, that didn't happen. I would wager that Thomas too gave a speech much more like, All right, lads, the coast is clear. Let's go get some treasure. And they would. Thomas II's early prizes would be some of the greatest yet taken in the entire history of piracy. They're going to rank in the minds of the public at least with the likes of Henry Morgan at Panama or Francis Drake at Nombre de Dios. They were big prizes. And they were especially big for prizes taken at sea. They're going to make Thomas II and... Richard Want and the crew of Amity and a bunch of other people very rich for a while at least. They're so big though that those prizes are going to inspire an entire generation of pirates and pirate hunters. From William Mason to Edward Coates to Henry Avery to William Kidd. Next time we're going to continue on with Thomas too with his new pirate crew on his new pirate ship, we're going to continue toward the first of those big prizes, via a stopover at St. Mary's Island. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of those who have signed up as patrons on Patreon, all of you who have given us ratings or reviews wherever you listen to the show and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family, you all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight